morning and Merry Christmas. If I have not met you yet, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I'm very excited. I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Um, something has happened over the years at Christmas. I, I listen to um, the questions that people ask, and what I have come to learn is that many in the room don't know common Christmas vocabulary. So we use these words, and lo and behold, they fly over a lot of people's heads. So what I want to do is I want to take a moment on the front end of the sermon, and we are going to have a Christmas terminology quiz. You will be competing with the person to your right and to your left, and you can figure out what the prize is, and we are going to test your Christmas knowledge and expertise. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Number one, Advent. Is it a biblical name for Jesus? <laughs> don't laugh. I'm trying not to laugh so that I don't give away the right answer. Is it a short season of preparation for Jesus' birth or a vent that goes into your attic that reminds us of Jesus? Do you have your <laughs> You've got your answer, Jonathan? Do you have your answer? The correct answer is... Two. Good job. Uh, Advent lasts for four Sundays. It starts four Sundays before Christmas. It culminates on Christmas Eve. And Advent goes all the way back recorded time to the fourth century. That's the first recording of it. Um, probably existed before that. But it's an opportunity to remember what Jesus did for us, but also to build the anticipation for the inevitability of the second coming. Jesus came once, fulfilled uh, millennia of promises as the people of God waited, and then uh, we know again as he has apparently waited millennia for the second coming, but we know for certainty that he's not on our timetable and that he is coming back again, and so we wait with anticipation. Word number two, incarnation. A beautiful flower that represents the birth of Jesus. I am married to a florist. There we go. Number two, spirit taking the form of flesh. Number three, a magical spell used by the magi to find Jesus. (laughs) Uh, Do you have it? No. Number two is the answer. Uh, Incarnate, to become incarnate or incarnation, is when something non-bodily spirit takes a bodily form. So when Jesus, who is eternally preexistent, becomes flesh as he is born, conceived and born in Mary, that is the incarnation. It is him, God, becoming flesh, incarnation. Now, for the rest of your lives, you will know what the word incarnation means. Number three. Saint Nicholas. Number one, a pastor who defended Jesus. Number two, a fairy tale character. Number three, the owner of the stable where Jesus was born. You got it? We'll go number one. Uh, I'll tell you the story, the tradition of Saint Nicholas. 325 AD, there was the Council of Nicaea. That is a true story. The Council of Nicaea was a gathering of 100 plus pastors from around the known world at the time. And (laughs) there's Saint Nicholas for you. Punchline given. So what happened, there was a dude named Arius. And uh, what Arius did is he was promoting a false gospel and false views of who Jesus was. In fact, what Arius did is Arius would say that Jesus is not eternally preexistent, but that when Jesus was born, that's when he was created. Of course, this is heresy. It is unbiblical. And uh, so they gathered at the Council of Nicaea to, to address 
primarily this and a couple other issues. And uh, out of the Council of Nicaea came the Nicene Creed, which you might be familiar with. And uh, apparently this rumor has it that St. Nicholas was there and he was so frustrated with Arius that he got up and he punched him in the face. And so you will find during Christmas is memes like this, St. Nicholas, I came to give presents to kids and to punch heretics and I just ran out of presents. So you'll typically notice this from your more theologically inclined friends and uh, for us, this stuff's great humor and this is, this is what makes us delightful about Christmas. Okay, um, did he actually do it? We don't know. I think so. I'll go with yeah. It feels good. That's how we make decisions about the past. All right, number four, the word holiday. Number one, a Christian term combining the words holy and day used for Christian religious days. Number two, a term used in secular culture is a catch-all to not offend various religions. Number three, an annual event to increase profit margins for business. The answer is all of the above. I'm so proud of you guys. Like, you're so smart. This is good. So let's shift gears a little bit. Christmas has become sort of a challenge for sincere Christ followers. And the reason it's become a challenge is because what once was a holy day or even a holy season has now become, in the most secular sense of the word, a holiday. And we find this is it really is a catch-all term to not offend people. Um, We also find that uh, it's just really an opportunity for people to make a lot more money. Now, if you have a business where you make a lot more money during Christmas season, I don't care. What I do care most about is your heart. What I do care most about is the object of your affection, adoration, and worship. That's what most concerns me. And so what we find, though, is that for people who really want to honor Christ and follow him, uh, we have the joyful obligation to reframe this Christmas season in our homes and in our churches. And so uh, Christmas for Christians is a time to, number one, intentionally remember what God has done through feast, storytelling, Ritual and song. By the way, you go back millennia, and this is how God would call his people to remember great acts of salvation so that they would not forget it, their children would not forget it, and for generations, the people of God would not forget these things. So take the story of Passover. It happened 3,000 years ago. God saved the Jewish people from Egyptian slavery, brought them into the promised land, and here's what he commanded them to do. He commanded them, every year you come together and you remember, and here's what you do. You have a feast. You eat together. Praise God for them. And anybody else like planning some incredible food at Christmas time? It's biblical. That's what I say. Eat, eat, eat. Number two is they would tell the story. Uh, and the reason they told the story is because they didn't want the story to become mythology. And so they would retell the true story of what really happened. And that's why uh, the prophets would write down the happenings, the great works of God in scripture so that we could have these things preserved so that when we open up the word of God with our kids and our grandkids and our great grandkids, we're retelling the true historical stories of the great acts, interventions, salvation stories of God in history. Why? Because we are so prone to forget it. All of us. 
And so we retell the story and we hand it down from one generation to generation fighting mythology. Uh, we have rituals and traditions and things that we do and part of the, the, the church calendar for literally now it seems to be 1600 years has been this season of Advent which is preparation and it's almost like a reenactment of the multi-millennial waiting of the people of God for the first coming. Uh, it also prepares our hearts for the second coming but we have these rituals and traditions that we follow to make sure we don't forget the most important parts of the story. Uh, We have this, we have songs. Uh, If you go back to Passover Psalms 113 to 118, they're the Passover Psalms. And so the people of God would write music historically to commemorate these events that God did. And these songs would come up every year at the time that they would celebrate these feasts and these festivals. So it was very expected that um, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, um, a lot of this practice would still happen. And so very early on in our church calendar, Christmas and Easter became two of the most significant events for the church. Why? Because they're the retelling of two of the most significant events in God's salvation story for the people of God. And so we stand on the shoulders of 1,600 plus years of believers who pause at this time to remember what God did for us, to retell the story that God kept his word, kept his promises, and then we hand this story to the multiple next generations so that they can continue to tell the story. We're 2,000 years since the crucifixion, resurrection, the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the story is still being told over and over because of how God has structured this. Commercializing Christmas is our temptation to get away from this. And when we commercialize Christmas, we reduce Jesus to a commodity that we exploit rather than a person that we adore. And this is the threat. This is the siren call for all of us. Like you're, you're here and you're, you might be listening and, and you might have your like note open, right? Because you're like, oh, I got to buy a present for so-and-so. You're like, thank God for Amazon Prime, one day delivery, praise Jesus, from whom all blessings flow. Like that's what you're thinking about, but that's how you know that very well Jesus might have become slowly and steadily a commodity for you. But in the church, we rise above this. In our homes, in our churches, we do something just a little bit different. We interrupt this insanity, home by home, and heart by heart, and we celebrate Christmas differently. As people engage with your home, as they engage with your family, as they engage with your traditions, as they get in your car and they hear your playlist, as they, there should be something unusually Jesus-centered about this season. But this is the siren call. Presence, 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 more, 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 presence, presence. We feast, we tell the true story, We have traditions and rituals, and we sing, and every year we do the same thing to remind ourselves and not let ourselves grow numb. Number two, Christmas is for Christians. For Christians, it's a time to intentionally reignite our awe and wonder. So in that spirit, would you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. I want to share with you the true story of the shepherds on the night when Jesus Christ was born. Now, as you turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 8, I want to ask a favor of you, especially as we read the first section of this story. Um, It is not uncommon that when the time of reading the scriptures happen, if you've heard it like a thousand times, we zone out. Anyone, Anyone 
like understand that? Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, listening to the podcast, fast forward that, fast forward that, been there, done that, right? What I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to slow down and rather than skip or zone out. And what I want to ask you to do, actually, is I want to ask you to immerse your brain in the story. I want you to imagine you're there. What does it look like? What do the shepherds look like? What do the angels look like? What does it sound like? What's actually happening? Is it daytime or nighttime? The reason I want to ask you to do this is because typically the narrative in your brain, the pictures in your brain, it is really the outplaying of all the children's stories that you read as a kid, right? And so this will be an opportunity for you just to imagine, and then we're going to kind of compare some of them and see what really happened on this incredible night. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. All right. In your minds... What are the angels wearing? White robes, right? Choir. Isn't that what goes through your brain? Here's what's, here's what's interesting. If you've been with us at Village Church, like every year I say the same thing, and it's like one of my favorite little like insights into the Christmas text. Um, it is probably not white robes. In fact, um, the shepherds and Luke's accounting of this reference the angels as military or military language. And somehow by the way they were seen or viewed or what they were wearing, it communicated some sort of angelic army regalia. I don't know what it is, but I want to see it. And I guarantee you it's cooler than any nation on earth. But that being said, There was something about what they saw as they retold the story that caused both them and Luke to recount them as a host, which is purely military language. So I don't know what they were wearing, but definitely I don't think it was like a white flowing robe. Okay, in your mind's eye, as the glory of the Lord shines around them, what does the glory of God look like? Oh, you're so like theologically grounded. I love this. So like go back to the book of Exodus and uh, Moses is like, I want to see your glory. And God's like, that's adorable. You can like see maybe like the shadow of the shadow on my back or something. And, and so Moses gets like this just minor glimpse of the glory of God. And he ends up radiating this light, this glory of God as he comes down the mountain, right? And um, you get to Paul. He sees Jesus Christ and he's blinded by this incredible bright light. First Timothy chapter six or 16 says that God dwells in unapproachable light, right? And so what you find here is that the glory of God is this brilliant, unbelievably blinding, unforgettable, brighter than the sun, amazing, unforgettable, bright light. Isn't that cool? Like this is going to be an unforgettable experience for these men. Verse 12, it says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. All right, I... Because you've heard that so many times, what I, what I want to do is I want to just take a moment back. I've, I have written the Michael Standard translation of this. I want to say to you in my own language, all of the information and ideas and facts that these shepherds would have heard by what these angels said. Okay, here we go. 
don't be afraid. I'm not going to kill you. (laughs) Though I could. I have incredible news that will change your life in the entire world. Tonight, a baby was born for you. To save you. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of King David, just around the corner, just as God promised for thousands of years in Scripture. This baby is the one that you and all Israel have been waiting for, chosen by God to free you. But hear this. He's not just a baby. He is literally our God incarnate. Yahweh has taken flesh. Here's how you know it will be him. He'll be in a barn, wrapped tightly like a servant's baby. He'll be lying in an animal's feeding trough, and his mother will be unmarried. Like, that's how they received it. That's different than just the flowy poetry that you're used to, isn't it? That's the content and the oomph of it. Now, um, let's talk for a moment about how royal babies in England are born and what happens the moment they're born. This is crazy. The moment a baby is born, a royal baby in England, the town crier, who looks just like this, this is true, hilarious, looks like a pirate, <laughs> he goes around London declaring the birth. Then, the Tower of London, a 62-gun salute. In Green Park, fire, they fire off 41 guns. Major landmarks post massive announcements all over the city. A special blanket is made to wrap the baby. The baby is then publicly presented to the crowds wherever it has been born. The child then gets baptized or christened in an ornate golden bowl. Here's the actual bowl uh, that they baptize or christen them in. And the water from this bowl can only come from the Jordan River in Israel. Don't you, when you expect if God... The most majestic, glorious, all-powerful, beautiful, entertaining, mesmerizing being in all the universe was going to be born, that there would be like, I don't know, fanfare or something, a little bit, right? Even the glory that shines is a couple miles away from the actual baby himself. And here's what we find. This is going to be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Uh, Jesus, in his first coming, did not just come in humility, Jesus came in utter humiliation. And he would come in the same way that he would go. He didn't just die in humility. He would die in utter and total humiliation. I mean, these shepherds are going to find a mother whose reputation is that of a whore. The father was illegitimate. Jesus was a cultural embarrassment. This isn't in my script how I would do things. But then again, God never plays by my script because he's always up to something a little bit better and more beautiful. Verse 13 says this, suddenly, like shockingly, like there's one and now there's a whole host in their army regalia. (laughs) And there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Question. Are you sure the angels are singing here? Because the text never says it. What would you imagine a group of militiamen, would you imagine them chanting or singing? Chanting, uh, don't get me wrong, they are praising, but praising isn't always singing. Now, if I get to heaven and God plays the, I don't know, the MP4, whatever, I was going to say 
VHS, but that doesn't work. How old are you, Michael? I'm not that old. The DVD, ah, the Blu-ray, ah, the Blu-ray 3D, whatever. Whatever it is when I get there, and they sing great. I'm not saying they didn't. I'm just saying it doesn't say that. We do fill in the blanks a lot with our own versions, which is why it's sometimes so fun to just sit in the text and, and remove kind of all your preconceived notions and let it speak to you. But here's what we know. There was a lot of them. It was unbelievable. And I want to know when I get to heaven exactly what happened here. Verse 15, when the angels went away from there into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing which the Lord has made known to us. And this is honestly the only appropriate response when you hear God became flesh to save you. Now, there are inevitably, it's Christmas time. Some of you were dragged here by your family. Like, you don't want to be here. Like, this is a Christmas present. Your presence here is a Christmas present to someone in your family. Uh, my, my simple hope, I can't save you. I can't make you believe anything. My simple hope is that as you hear what our God has done, you would pursue the evidence to see if this is real and true. In fact, the author who wrote this is a historian and a doctor, and he wrote the book of Luke with the objective that he would crush the concept of mythology, and he interviewed firsthand, secondhand witnesses over and over and over again to write an account that he believed was historically true and accurate to the facts so that people who weren't there firsthand would know that they know that they know that these events are not mythology, but they are true historical fact. And when you hear something unbelievable like this, it should be our response to not just say, ugh, but to pursue and to figure out if this is real or not. Verse 16 says, they went with haste, meaning they dropped everything. There was almost like a negligence to their pursuit because whatever this was was infinitely more pressing and more important than whatever they were dealing with at the time. And verse 16 goes on, says, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, just as the angels had told them. So today, as of today, I have been alive 14,448 days. Any geniuses in the room that can tell me my birthday other than my wife? I don't know if there was like a, like a May 31st, 1980, so close. But if you were truly a genius, you would have been like, bam, I got it. I'm like looking for somebody. Not here? Okay, good. May 31st, 1980. Um, I say that because in my now almost 40 years, there are maybe maybe five moments in my life that are hinge point. Um, once this thing happens, there's my life before this event and my life after this event. Uh, one of them was a phone call I got in the year 2000. Another was when uh, I met my wife. Another was when I trusted in Jesus Christ for the first time. This is the hinge point moment of these men's life. There's before this night and after this night for the rest of their lives until the day they die. Now, when they found Jesus, did he have a halo around his head? No, he didn't. Why? Well, because those are just pictures, but because he did not come in glory this time. He came in humility and humiliation. He came for a very different purpose than when he comes the second time. This time, Jesus came to die. The second time he comes, he will come to crush and to rebuild. But the reason he had to come this way this time was because he wanted to offer forgiveness of sins and salvation to anybody who wanted reconciliation with God. 
Um, Our sin has separated us. It has ruined our relationship with God. If there was no sin, this would never need to happen. The entire point of what Jesus had to come to the earth the first time for to be humiliated and executed on a cross was because our sin has separated us from God and we need reconciliation back to God. Because he's God, conveniently, he knows there is literally no other way that humanity can be reconciled back to God because we could never pay the price for our sins. Someone else could not pay the price for our sins. Only God himself would be able to deal with our sin justly and provide what we actually need for true reconciliation. There literally was no other way. If there was another way, I'm sure the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, infinite in wisdom and majesty and genius, would have figured out another way. But this was the most effective, efficient, or only way to accomplish everything God needed to accomplish. And so the first time Jesus comes, he comes on purpose in humiliation. He comes on purpose in humility because this was the point to draw all men to himself, to provide a way so that nobody, nobody need not go to hell. Everybody, anybody who would trust in Jesus Christ could actually be reconciled to God and be in relationship with God. So what? If you're new with us, we end our sermons. And just because I say, so what, doesn't mean it's close to the end, just so you know. (laughs) You've learned that. But so what, number one, we end our sermons with a few so what's. Would you ask Jesus to reignite your wonder and your worship? Look at verse 17. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered. They wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, she treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. So my goal this morning is pretty simple. My goal is to lead you in the direction toward awe and wonder. Again, Now, here's my limitation. I actually can't cultivate awe and wonder in you. If I could, I would. I can tell a story that can make you feel something for a moment. But the kind of awe and wonder that leave you just mouth open, like, God, you're so good and amazing, I can't give that to you. If I could, I would. But it seems that this awe and wonder is something that you have to go before the Lord and grow as you grow in your relationship with him. You have to go before him and ask him for this. Now, it's almost impossible to experience the same level in awe and of awe and wonder when you hear a story versus when you experience it, right? So here's a question. Do you think I or God is expecting you to have the same level of emotional awe and wonder as these shepherds had? The answer is, No, I'm sorry. Like, if I was there, I would probably be talking about this for the rest of my life. I would probably weave it into a lot more sermons than just Christmas. Remember the time I saw the glory of God, the emanating bright light? And you'd be like, stop talking about the glory of God. When you are able to experience something, it goes deep and it's personal in a different way than if you just hear it. So let me, let me say this. My objective is not to make you feel awe and wonder like the shepherds felt on that day. I don't know that anybody's going to experience that until we get to heaven and our brains are blown by the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. My simple objective is to point you to Jesus 
and to help you grow awe and wonder as you grow in proximity to Jesus. Here's, here's what I have learned. My awe and wonder toward Jesus is almost directly correlated to the proximity of my relationship with him. Like the closer I am with him, the more in awe and wonder I am at what he has given me. Here's what I do know that you can experience just like the shepherds. The same grace that they received, you received. The same mercy that they received, you received. The same forgiveness that they received, you received. The same spirit that they would receive if they live long enough uh, to see uh, Jesus crucified and risen from the dead. It's the same spirit that you would receive. The same heaven that you're going to get, it's the same heaven that they're going to get. The same beauty of salvation that they were given, it's the same beauty that you were given. And what I find is that relationally, just one on one, I'm not talking about salvation, just relationally, the more we neglect Jesus in our personal life, the less awe and wonder and gratitude we have toward him. You know this to be true. You know this to be true. And so what I found is that the solution to awe and wonder at Christmas is pursuing Jesus and relationship with him as my God and my Savior. That is one of the most remarkable solutions. It's spending time in his word and with his people and worshiping, and it has a direct correlation on our ability to have awe and wonder. And yet, here's what I know. For many of us, if not most of us in this room, we get to Christmas and we're like, another Christmas series, another Christmas sermon. But this is the point. The people of God take the most remarkable events in salvation history. We put them in in, in our calendars, and we make sure we celebrate and remember them. Let me tell you this, every year on your birthday, right? You don't want people to be like, oh my gosh, it's his birthday again, right? We are celebrating our God and our Savior, and our proximity and love and appreciation for him really does have a profound effect on our ability to experience awe and wonder. If your lack of awe and wonder is there, my guess is that it's because your relationship with God has been dry lately. I can also say this, You will never, ever experience awe and wonder until you have personally experienced relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Like whatever desire for awe and wonder at the goodness of God I could have for you, the biggest roadblock is your personal faith in Jesus Christ. Because until you trust in Christ, you will never experience even an ounce of the awe and the wonder that these shepherds experience. You will never be able to make sense of your Christian friends and why they're so in awe of how good God is and why they love to worship him and why they talk about his goodness. And when they think about his mercy and forgiveness, they're just like, oh, he's so amazing. Like that to you is foreign and it will always be foreign until you personally experience salvation and grace and mercy through faith in Jesus. So I want to ask you this Christmas, this is the point of the season. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Because if you haven't, there will be no real awe and wonder the way God intends it to be. Number two, celebrate Christmas as a holy day, not a holiday. I just want to encourage you, eat, (laughs) celebrate, gather your family together and enjoy. Somehow, Like, somehow holidays sometimes get stolen of their joy. I'm telling you, the people of God, we are a feasting, rejoicing people. Lean into that. If you have a home, build build something where people can come together and eat and make it centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Tell the story. Retell the story. Tell the story in a way your kids can understand. Have your kids tell the story. Open up the word of God. Read it out loud. Make sure you hand off not the myth, but the true historical account from one generation to the next and to the next. And give that next generation 
the, the command to make alive this story for the generation coming after them. Never let them forget that these are the stories that define our life. These are these massive God interventions in history that have transformed humanity as we know it. We will not forget these things. Tell the story. Rituals and traditions, the, the church is not opposed to them. It's when these rituals and traditions take the place of the gospel, it's a problem. But we are a people who have, have habits and rituals. I don't know what your familial habits are. Find them, make them up. Do something beautiful, but have it all point to Jesus so that we can take these memorable moments and instill in our children and grandchildren the truth of who God is. Sing. I love every Christmas around right, right, right after Thanksgiving, we start singing Christmas songs and uh, we sing Christmas songs in this church that point people to, to Jesus and who he truly is and what he's done for us. But song has a way of just binding our hearts together, putting melody to truth, makes it memorable and it, and it sears it into our hearts and into our minds. And so what you play on the radio during Christmas, how you think about your home, what you think about church, how you approach Christmas Eve, all of this is a part of feasting and storytelling and ritual and song. And this is how we take this beautiful truth and we retell it for the next generation to love and to personally own so that they can retell it for the next generation to love and to personally own. So now as we close, I want to I end with verse 10. I want to come back to this. Verse 10 says this. Fear not. I think it's verse 10. Anyways, fear not. Whatever verse that is, Josh. And he starts off and he says, fear not, because number one, seeing an angel is petrifying in and of itself. Um, But number two, I want you to just catch, I want you to catch the implications of this. Um, In the moment when these shepherds see the angels, everything is topsy-turvy. This is the unforgettable moment of their life. But as they leave, after they meet Jesus and they go home, a thought is going to inevitably hit them. If this is the Savior, then here's what this means. Rome, the world's superpower, and their brains, this is how they're going to put this together, is going to have to be turned upside down. And Jesus, this baby, is going to grow to be a man that's going to lead a revolution. And there's going to be bloodshed and war on a global scale. Like those are some of the thoughts that are going to be going through these shepherds' heads. Let me tell you why. Because they didn't have this enormous theological development like we have right now. They understood that there would be a suffering servant, but they also understood that, that, that the Messiah was going to take over the world and, and usher in global peace. They didn't have theological categories that these things were going to be like separated from each other by at least two millennia. And so in their brains, like I can understand why the angels are saying, don't be afraid. The implications of what I'm going to share with you are indeed global in scale. But fear is not something we need to be worried about when we consider just the implications of God becoming flesh. He says, behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. doesn't matter how evil they are. doesn't matter how wicked they are, how unsavable they are, how dark they are that Jesus Christ is the only offer of salvation for anyone. And he says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's one thing about these shepherds that make them different than most shepherds. Um, It is most likely these are the shepherds that were right uh, within a few mile distance of the temple in the first century where the sacrifices were offered. These were likely a group of shepherds who had devoted their entire lives to raising, protecting, evaluating for purity, and delivering the firstborn sheep for temple sacrifice. 
And so they're familiar by occupation, okay, of sacrificial lambs. Uh, there is a reliable tradition that says that when they would take these lambs, when these lambs were born, they would wrap them in swaddling cloths and they would put them in the feeding trough or a manger, if you will, as they're born. Think about this. And now an angel comes to you and he says, I've got good news. It's going to be for all the people. And then he says, you're going to find him. Here's how you're going to know. He's going to be wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's going to be put in a manger. And in their brain, they're making an immediate connection the moment they hear this. That's what we do with our sacrificial lambs. And the moment they meet Jesus and they see this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, just like they would do with their sacrificial lambs, here's what they know. This baby was born to be slaughtered. I mean, the gospel is just before them. In images, the angels don't have to say much. All of their training tells them exactly what this is going to culminate in. He says, don't be afraid. This is the point. God is clearly up to something very different than you and I would have planned if we could write this story. And so I think it's fitting uh, in our last um, Sunday sermon of Christmas that we come to the communion table and we are reminded. We're reminded the incarnation is on its own unbelievable. But even the way in the place the child was born was done in a way to say the child was born to be slaughtered. And he was born to be slaughtered for our sin, for yours and mine. And I love as the Bible just unfolds how one can be forgiven. It's through faith and not by works. It's not by going to church. It's not by delivering presents. It is through placing your faith in Jesus Christ. And when we partake of communion, we go back and we remember what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And the reason the incarnation has meaning is because of the crucifixion and then the resurrection. So we're going to partake of these elements, and I want to just give you a a one-on-one on on how we do things at Village. Um, Many of you are here, and you're from different churches, and I want to just say welcome. I want to invite you. I don't care where you go to church. If you have personally trusted in Jesus as your God and Savior, I want to invite you to partake of communion with us. We are one body. Where you go to church is not of relevance to us here. We're just really happy that you are here to worship with us this morning. Some of you, um, you have never trusted in Christ And so I want to just share with you um, one ask and then tell you why. Our ask is that as the elements pass in a little bit, that you not partake. And here's why. Because to partake of communion is to make a very personal declaration that you believe in a virgin birth, that you believe in a literal incarnation, that you believe the shepherd's story that you believe Jesus Christ is fully God. It's a declaration that you believe he died on the cross for your sins, that you believe God raised him from the dead, that you believe he is coming back. Like to partake of communion is to make a massive declaration. To partake of communion is to declare that you don't believe good people go to heaven, but salvation is for anyone who trusts in Jesus Christ. And so if you're not there yet, um, there's no reason for you to partake of communion. And, and again, nobody will judge you or look down on you. But when the elements pass, if you would allow them to pass and not partake, if you have yet to trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe today is the day you're like, you know what, I believe. When these elements come by you, if today you believe for the first time, I want to encourage you, partake of these elements and make that proclamation of your trust and faith in Jesus Christ by your partaking of these elements. So we're going to have a time of silence. It's an opportunity for you to pray, to talk to God, to thank him, to confess to him. 
Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to sing as the elements are passed out. Uh, If you'd hold on to the elements at the end of the song, we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. So let's have a time of silence together.